This is Air Commander Starscream, and you are listening to Half Measures. Uh, Half Measures? Sounds like Megatron's battle strategy. <laughs> For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic, before the Dark Times, before the Empire, before Anakin Skywalker turned to the dark side, turned against his master, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But really, if the Dark Times and the Empire had never come along, if the Emperor had never given Anakin the title of Darth Vader and forced Obi-Wan into hiding in some sand-covered planet to watch over Anakin's son, we wouldn't be here today to talk about so many things about the finale of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Joining me on this journey is someone who always has the high ground, Jedi Master Daniel Wadding King. Hello there, Dan. Hello there. It's great to be here, Paul. Lots to talk about today. I can't wait for our, our deep dive into this episode. Um, you and I really struggle to hold off talking about this show before um, before the pod, yep. but today we, we've done it. We've, we've not shared any emotions or reactions or, or first thoughts, so you'll be getting it you know, really fresh today. It's like, it's like we've had an argument, you know, and we're not talking to each other. It's like, that's how silent the radio chat has been. It's like we've, we've fallen out and we've got, we won't talk to each other, but the truth is neither of us want to give away anything about our thoughts about that episode. There are other things for us to talk about today. We've got a joint watch of the responder. We've got a movie of the week and we've got whatever else we've been watching as well. So there's, there's heaps going on. And there's so many Star Wars quotes I want to keep dropping. Like I wanted to say your thoughts betray you before, but it kind of just like, you know, it didn't it didn't fit. And then I wanted to say, you may be on this council, but we do not grant you the rank of master. But it's just, it's not working. But I'm sure there'll be plenty of opportunities throughout this pod. There's always opportunities, Dan. Uh, let's, let's, let's just dive straight in. What have you been watching this week? Um, so the first thing I'm actually going to come into you with, Paul, is I'm going to come into you with a book. So, you know me, Paul, always just always be reading. Nerd, so, nerd, nerd. Bloody nerd. So the first book that I've read is, uh, well, the first book, the book I've read this, this week is uh, a Star Wars book, surprise, surprise, <laughs> Catalyst, a Rogue One novel. So this is a book that I know that you've read um, previously. Mm. It's one that you've actually recommended to me before. And just sort of a, a bit of a, a high-level plot of this book. So it came out... In, I think 2017, uh, James Luciano is the the author of this one, and it kind of is, is really kind of a, a a prequel to Rogue One. And so during the Clone Wars, the the Republic basically begins working on a, on a moon sized battle station that some of us may have heard of, based on a Separatist design. So the Separatists sort of being Count Dooku and the uh, particularly the 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 God the droids. Now what's the what's the word I'm looking for the what? Oh my God, I've lost the word. You know, you know the robots, the, the, the Roger Rogers, the battle droids, battle droids. That's, that's the, word. the word I'm looking for. God, God, it's my brain. It's broken. This isn't going to be good. We're off to a, a bad start. Anyway, so they're hoping to um, design, like, complete their construction before the the Separatists build their own battle station. However, the Republic finds out that building the primary weapon of the station will entail some groundbreaking energy enhancement. So leading this project is Lieutenant Commander Orson Krennic, who we know from Rogue One. 
and he offers to recruit one of the finest scientists in the galaxy, an energy scientist uh, named Gala Nusso, who we also met during Rogue One, uh, to provide that sort of breakthrough. And so it kind of tells the story, I guess, of how Krennic and Urso um, became friends, how they kind of got to know each other. And it's kind of a, a story, I think, on one hand of Galen, um, his wife and their, their daughter Jin, and they're sort of the the things that happened to them in the lead up to Rogue One, um, and very much Galen's character is like he's he's a obviously a very intelligent scientist. He's doing some amazing things with kyber crystals and trying to enhance energy, and but he's he's a pacifist and he's looking at the the energy and the how he can sort of help planets and help them sort of build renewable and sustainable energy as opposed to thinking about how we can make a giant um, Death Star weapon. And then on the flip side, you've got um, Lieutenant Commander Orson Krennic, who's he's really trying to sort of work his way up through the Empire. He's got some real kind of tensions and rifts with um, Moff Tarkin. He wants to be kind of the, the 2IC to the Emperor. He even sees trying to gain um, Darth Vader's favour. And so you've kind of got this tension where he's kind of playing um, uh, Galen to sort of try and uh, convince him of, of how he needs to help without actually outright telling him that we're going to actually use your your thinking and your research to create a, a weapon of mass destruction. And it's a it's an interesting book. It's, it's quite different to any of the other Star Wars books that um, I've read, mostly because it's quite dry. Like mm. it's it's largely a book that talks heavily about sort of the the politics between, you know, the, the Clone Wars have just ended, so how the Empire's kind of setting itself up and how people are positioning themselves. There's a lot of information about uh, Galen's research and different uh, corporations who want that research to for their own sort of bidding and own reasons. And it's it's a good book. But it's it's very different to the, I think, more classic Star Wars books that I've previously been reading. Yeah, I think that's a really good sort of overview and summary because, and you said two things that really resonated for me. One, that it's very dry, um, and it and it is, and I actually quite like that every now and then in amongst you know some of the. You know, think about like Dark Disciple and some of the the bigger sort of lightsaber sweeping type books every now and then i quite like it's sort of almost like a technical technical book in that respect with all the kyber crystal stuff um so i, I like that side of it and the other thing you said was how um krennic and galen became friends and that's really interesting because that is genuinely how krennic views it that they are that they are friends and that they they are a team and um that clearly isn't the case by the time we see them in in Rogue One, and so for me, it, it tackles two really good questions: like how did how do you build a Death Star and manage to keep it secret? You know, it's, it's, yeah, you build a skyscraper in the middle of the city; you, everyone sees it coming. How do you build this thing and, and keep it a secret? And then, secondly, that whole question of you know, because when we, when we meet Galen in Rogue One and we when we see what he's done, like how does a, a good, honest, decent man like Galen Erso ever get involved with the Empire? You know. To, to begin with and then of course how does he actually escape to to go off um farming so so yeah i think your your summary is really right right on the money i think if if you're a fan of rogue one i think this is a great read you'll, you'll get a lot of stuff out of it um there's a lot of that sort of manipulation of yeah, so by by krennic in terms of uh, there's like a web of deception and he's working on us on a super weapon without even realizing it and that's the real catch i think 
I think too, it's a book that I think if I hadn't, I've seen Rogue One, it, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much, but I think yes. because I've got such a, a strong sense of who these characters are from Rogue One, it really kind of brought them to life. And I would almost say my one uh, critique, and I, it's probably a small C critique, would be, so this goes right back in, right back in time. So Jin is only just sort of, only just born in the early sort of chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. And it's very much sort of the first five or so years of, of of her life, and then she's only very lightly touched on. Um, but I think, like, by the time the book ends, uh, this is full spoilers if you wanted to read this book, this is basically where um, Galen and his family disappear. And so if you sort of go into Rogue One, um, Krennic is on sort of the hunt for them and sort of finds them at the start of that movie. And I kind of wished it went more into the the disappearance and so that there was maybe a bit more of a a, a seamless um, sort of transition, I think, into when when Rogue One starts. And the reason I say that is I'm really intrigued in the the sort of the whole plot of the story where um, Galen basically gives up his research to go into hiding, but Galen's such a... Like he's he's got some real core beliefs around how kyber crystals can help people. He wants to help other planets. I I can't imagine that journey of going on the run for him would have been easy. But it's it doesn't really go into any of that. It goes more into sort of the 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 background and the history. Yeah, no, it does. And I think it is the history that it adds the weight and the gold for me because you know there's so much around the Skywalker saga and so many books around that. But Rogue One is relatively standalone and so you, if you want to see or learn more of that obviously we've got the Andor series coming out which is going to give us that side of thing but from a Jin perspective from a Galen perspective this is a real good opportunity that's why there's another book Rebel Rising um, which is around Jin and her rise up with um, Saw Gerrera which is a, another one worth a read I, I would fancy but I, I really like the the time span that this book manages to cover so you know you, you get that 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 whole sweeping bit through the Clone Wars and then you get some key events in Revenge of the Sith start to come through and you see them from a different perspective than the than we saw in the movie. Um and you know it does some it does do that sort of thing where we we the flashbacks. So we get we catch a glimpse of a few flashbacks in Rogue One. For instance, the one where we're at the Urso residence uh, on Coruscant and we see them enjoying a glass of wine with Krennic. Yeah, I think that's I think that's like a dream that Jin is having in the movie, if memory serves. And we only see it for a few seconds, but we, you get to dive into moments like that, which I liked. And also, the we've always talked about the Tarkin Krennic dislike and how he sets him up to fail. You know, so that if the Death Star actually does work, it will be him who um, who does that. But the book goes off course in a couple of moments for me. It doesn't always stay the course. It I think it is quite technical. It does have that sort of operational stresses which i don't know budgets and deadlines you know i I hear enough of that in my day job i don't need to read about it but um it doesn't it doesn't always light all the fires but overall i find it a satisfying read i think it's funny you say that because there is a lot of like resourcing troubles and they say like building this death star is no no easy task i think one thing i had to give it to credit for in this book is he is a very patient man when it comes to trying to convince galen to come to this is a a plan i feel like he's worked on for several years and he kind of allows galen sort of by pulling strings to sort of have these different roles and slowly sort of turning them because he knows how galen's mind works and i think it's Mm. it's quite impressive how that works i think and i to your other point, I really enjoyed getting a little bit of Moff Tarkin 
it kind of sparked a bit more interest than maybe reading the uh, the Tarkin book. And I also enjoyed the Saw Gerrera uh, parts as well. And I think, again, it just sort of um, it does sort of inspire me to kind of read Rebel Rising and and watch Rogue One again. Yeah, no, definitely a good choice. And Tarkin is another another good watch. I don't know if you can see, Dan, but where my where my microphone sits in this very technical setup each week always sits on on the Tarkin book. It's the perfect height for my microphone. Tarkin book is a great read. I thought like Tarkin would appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so that is um, Catalyst, a Rogue One novel. So check that out if you're uh, a Star Wars book fan, if you're particularly interested in that sort of Rogue One storyline, you're interested in those characters. It is a, it's a great read. Uh, the other thing that I've watched is just a, a bit of a dip your hand in the lolly jar movie ball. Wow. So it's you know it's a Sunday night. I'm thinking let's watch a movie. I'm flicking through the what are the top ten movies in New Zealand right now on on Netflix in this case, and there was a movie on there called The Informer. So this movie came out in 2019, and it's basically about a an ex convict working undercover, and he intentionally gets himself incarcerated again in order to infiltrate a mob at a maximum security prison. This is a uh, like it feel like I it feels like a a straight to kind of um, DVD release or a you know straight to streaming type release. I'm not, I'm not sure if it came out at the at the theaters or not, but it's a it's a relatively enjoyable sort of popcorn movie. Um, stars Joel Kinnaman, who uh, we've seen in all sorts of things like Suicide Squad and um, The Killing. He's a he's a great actor, and it's kind of one of those movies that's I think got a enough of a a storyline that's kind of 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 interest. Like he's kind of working undercover. He's sort of working for the FBI. He goes back into jail. The FBI double cross him. He gets stuck in jail. It's I feel like it's a story that's been told several times in movies. And it's got you know, there's all sorts of great sort of um actors pop up like Clive Owens in it and um Rosamund Pike and it's 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 good and it's enjoyable. It's not going to kind of, you know, probably be on your top 10 list for uh, for the year. But it's a, it, it's a relatively good sort of good watch with enough sort of intriguing twists and turns, even though it will probably feel like you have seen those twists and turns before. This has been on my list for just a, a wee while now. Um, I do enjoy Joel Kinnaman, um, Rosamund Pike, uh, Clive Owen, and... So they're they're there for that reason, and the other reason it's on my list is the whole prison side. Anything, anytime there's a prison involved, there's a good chance I'm interested. And the idea of infiltrating at a maximum security prison. Um, the words "maximum security prison" are just like uh, like a like a sale sign for people that love shopping. For me, as soon as I see those words, I am like it just gets added to watch list straight away. So I haven't sort of scroll too far in this because I don't want any spoilers for myself because, um, you know, you've got the producers of John Wick and Sicario involved here. Um, relatively reasonable reviews without being outstanding. So this, I will be joining you on this one at some point for sure. Yeah, look, I, I encourage a watch. Like it's, it's like, it's better than, it's better than good, I would say. Um, it, it's probably just more, as I say, it's the familiar twists and turns, but, you know, sometimes it's good just to, you know, you know this Paul better than anyone. Dip your hand in that lolly jar, see what comes up, and Correct. just give something a whirl without sort of looking too deeply into it. So, if this interests you, this is the Informer, and you can watch it on Netflix. I just like to set some boundaries though, Dan, around the lolly jar because for me, when I hear lolly jar, that generally implies 
It's like a, a prime video. No one's ever heard of this from the 1960s or 70s or a real B movie. This this feels more mainstream than than Lolly Jive, but I appreciate the sentiment. Well, I think, Paul, you know, there's different categories of lolly jazz, right? Like there's a bunch of kind of like no no label brand lolly jazz where you might just sort of, who knows what you're getting out of there. You might get a Werther's Original or a Barley Sugar or a, a, a Sale Eskimo or something um, versus, you know, you might have some, you know, top tier lollies. So I'm not saying this is top tier, but, I'm you know, there's, there's different categories. I knew I should never try and put you in a box, Dan. It was never going to work. And so that is me this week, apart from our joint watches. How about yourself? Okay, so for me, uh, I'm rounding out my Watch of the Oceans uh, movie uh, this week with the 2018 movie Oceans 8. Um, So Debbie Ocean gathers an all-female crew to attempt an impossible heist at New York City's yearly Met Gala. Um, I thought this was great. I really enjoyed this. I found myself laughing at this way more than the, at least the last two Oceans movies that I've talked about on this podcast. I thought the cast are all exceptional. I thought the script was good. And actually, crucially almost, I thought from the point of view of the uh, of, of the cons and, you know, like the, the trickery and the complexity uh, and and how things always rely on timing of one person passing it, whatever. I thought the complexity of all that. I actually think in that respect, this is the best of all four movies because I think they actually they attempt some really clever con trickery stuff in that respect. So um, this was a much, much better watch than, uh, like, I don't understand that there's, there's a fair bit of criticism around this movie and I'm, to be honest, I thought it was fantastic. Have you have you watched this one, or was this on your radar? I I, am, I have not watched it, though it does look more interesting to me. Um, I think it, it's kind of the same story I've been saying for the last couple of weeks with the Ocean series. Watched the first one, fell off the radar after the two and three. This one does look good to me because I think that the cast kind of really jumps out again. It looks interesting, uh, obviously, with the director being uh, Gary Ross, who um, directed The Hunger Games. I imagine it's sort of got some some good stuff going on. But I, I haven't watched it purely because I kind of fell off the series as opposed to not wanting to watch it. Yeah, no, I, th- I, think, you, I think you would get a lot out of it. I mean, shout outs. I mean, Sandra Bullock, Anne Hathaway, Kate Blanchett, as, as sort of the, the primary leader, thought were all were all standouts. Um, Helena Bonacarta, always great value. She plays her role superb. She's so well cast for that role. And then you've got some other nice um, sort of casting in there to play some real interesting characters. Um, one of your favourites, um, Aquafina. Um, she's she's well cast, um, and. There's just some really nice little. There's a cameo from Elliot Gould from the Ocean's trilogy. The the premise being that you know Danny Ocean has passed away, um, and so this is something that uh, Debbie Ocean, um, you know, to keep it in the the family. So this is she's the the younger sister, um, fresh out of prison, uh, getting a gang together, and yeah, it's yeah. There there are some real nice moments in this. I. Overall, I would actually place this second out of the four movies. I thought it was really good. I'm I'm really disappointed it hasn't got a sequel because I, I think it's earned it. Um, I know that they're going in a 
a different direction with uh, the reboot that's coming, which, um, you know, I'll, I'll still be keen to see that. But I really feel like this group of of, of actors or actresses is really just superb, just really held their own. I think, you know, if you like heists, you're going to love this. If you've heard about this, but heard a lot of criticism, I think ignore it. I think it's... I think it's a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I, I give this one three out of four guns then. Really good time. Well, so uh, as what you're saying to me is I could probably jump in on this movie without the previous context. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, it, it, it sort of it paints by numbers the, the opening scene to sort of let you know where this stands with regards to the, the previous trilogy. And you don't really need to know anything other than the fact she's a younger sister of Danny Ocean. So you know what you're going to get from that family. And um, yeah, I just thought that they were, they were all exceptional as, as the main cast and um, just, just really well written, just funny. I, I, I really have very little to say about this movie from a, from a critical perspective uh um you know I, I think if anything it was too short it was, it was, it was an hour 50 i felt like it could have it could have played out a little longer because they they had quite a few clever plot things going on yeah and whereabouts would i watch oceans eight in new zealand that is available on prime video dan amazing and then other than our uh three joint watches this week dan the other thing which i sort of said i was nearly finished last week and i have now finished is series six of Doctor Who. And this has been a long time coming for me. So this is uh, 2010, Matt Smith, Doctor Who. Uh, I, I was in the middle of catching up on all of this since you know, since the, the 2005 revival with Christopher Eccleston. I was watching them all the way through David Tennant's run on Netflix and then Netflix removed it. And it's been it hasn't been available on New Zealand's uh, you know, streaming services for some time. And then I didn't even know it was back. It was on Prime Video again, Prime Video. So this was absolutely a superb series. Matt Smith as the Doctor is just is just brilliant. I mean, bearing in mind, I haven't seen anything of the, the subsequent Doctors, so Peter Capaldi or, or Jodie Whittaker's run. I'm going to say right now, Matt Smith is officially my my second favorite doctor and only second to to Colin Baker who who played the sixth doctor in the 80s when I was you know sort of at that age when I was partly behind the the couch to use that trope but um this was an absolutely brilliant watch I cannot rate this highly enough it's superb it's good um it's I love it when these shows that you uh you know have been watching or kind of got an interest in kind of reappear on different streaming platforms. Yeah. And you often have to do quite a bit of sleuthing, don't you, to kind of track down, oh, where is it now and have we still got it? I think I need to be a bit more onto it and set up alerts, you know, how you can on the on the Just Watch app and various other sort of apps that can tell you when things reappear. I think I need because there's so much going on that yeah, I don't know how long it's been available on Prime Video, but um yeah, this this is just a different quality of Doctor Who for me. The dialogue between the Doctor and his companions, Amelia and Rory, is is hilarious. And so, you know, so the Doctor has, you know, famously had companions since the very beginning of it in the sixties. And I would also, I would actually go as far as saying that the the, the as, as Doctor companion combos go, this eleventh Doctor and Amelia is probably the strongest pairing since. Uh, Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen in the 1970s, which is always like the, probably the quintessential pairing. And these stories, uh, 
they're so different. They're so funny and exciting. And whilst they're not as scary as, you know, when I was a kid, they do always have that factor about them. There's this great one where the TARDIS itself, you know, the, the blue box that he travels in comes alive in human form, which was re really fascinating to see that ex explored. And just, you know, the quality of the production is, is, is so good. The effects are, are really good. And that's really just icing on the cake though, because people have often pointed at Doctor Who and classic Who in particular and said, oh, you know, it, it doesn't wear the effects of budget. It, you know, I can't, I'm not drawn in. For me, Doctor Who has always been about the quality of the of the stories, of the characters, and the, and that quintessential science fiction adventure of it all. So, um, so yeah. So there's there's lots of standout episodes for me, but I did make a note of a couple here. If anyone's just thinking of giving a, a one or two a try, uh, the Doctor's Wife, Day of the Moon, A Good Man Goes to War, and Let's Kill Hitler. Um, just really great fun. Um, I do have a couple of minor criticisms. So there was a couple of episodes that didn't resonate, perhaps. Um, James Corden comes in for a couple of episodes too. And it's a bit unfair of me to say it, but I just found it distracting having him there. It just the instant he showed up, it took me out of the moment somehow. I don't know. I don't know why. Um, but my biggest issue, and this actually doesn't apply necessarily to this series, but mainly to the whole revival of Doctor Who since New Who came back in 2005, is how short the stories are. So when I think about because I have Doctor Who as one of my top 10 TV series of all time. And when I think about what I love about it, overall, I prefer classic Who four-part length stories and I, that longer, you know, drawn out. And I know that these stories in the modern Who do interconnect, but if I'm going to be a bit geeky, I just prefer them to be neatly titled the same way and have that same classic scary music at the end of each part that sort of sets you up for the next one. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's where it works well for me. And those definitively self-contained stories that you see, you can go and find them and, and watch them, you know, like classics, like Genesis of the Daleks or, or the space pirates, you know, all those classics. It was, it was just fantastic. I think that's an interesting shout um, because so many uh, shows, particularly in the, I kind of think in the, in the early 2000s, did sort of go down that path of monster of the week or, you know, baddie of the week or whatever it may be. And I think it's something that I think where TV's really shifted to now, not always, but in general, is kind of, if they're going to do that, still keeping some long running sort of threads through the whole story, just to kind of mm. keep it a little bit more deeper and interesting. But I think um, you've brought up some some really fascinating points with this um season or series of Doctor Who and I think just looking at some of these photos I think you're right it looks like the the quality the the sets the uh, different effects look like they've really lifted up a notch but I'm I'm kind of in the, in the camp I think from our previous Doctor Who conversations is that I think you're right like this has always been about the story the the kind of the I guess the the campiness of some of the effects is just part of the part of what the series is about and I think that, that does add a certain charm to it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It, it, it does add a charm, and um, and when you combine that now with the quality of the the casting, I mean, as I say, Matt Smith and Karen Gillan, and, and particularly together, are just great. You know, my teenage years were relatively hooless, if you like, because you know there was from 1990 to 2004, there was there was no Doctor Who television series, and so even though I'm behind, 
it doesn't it doesn't matter because there's so many stories for, for over 60 years so i think if you if you've never watched doctor who and you know you th- might find it overwhelming to think where to start or where to jump in i think you could just jump in right here because all you need to know is you know there's a guy called the doctor there's an alien he takes he or she takes human form and travels across time in a blue box uh time and space sorry with a with a couple of companions and you know i really enjoyed the david tenant run which i was watching just before we started this podcast up but for me this series is is literally the best that i have watched since since the the classic you know since 20 season what was then season 26 of classic who back in 1989 and yeah it's it's i can't wait now to go into series seven and hopefully you know if, if it stays on prime video i can bring a, a series to the pod every month or so as i go but for now that's series six as i say on prime video and look, if you really want to get deep into the the Who universe, friends of the show, Patty and Trisha actually host a, a podcast where they deep dive into every single episode of uh, Doctor Who. Um, you can find their podcast, Time Travelling Temp, on all your podcast platforms. Indeed, yeah. They're midway through Tom Baker's run at this point. I can't wait for them to get to Matt Smith in probably what will be 2025, I imagine, <laughs> to see if their review matches my thoughts on on series six of this run but uh so yeah check out time traveling team podcast meantime dan shall we head to merseyside let's do it so this is one of our our joint watches of the week so paul and i've been watching a a tv show called the responder which you can watch on uh tvnz plus here in new zealand Uh, and it's basically about a a crisis-stricken, morally compromised first responder who tackles a series of night shifts on the beat in Liverpool while trying to keep his head above water personally and professionally. And it stars everyone's favourite Hobbit, everyone's favourite Tim from The Office, Mr Martin Freeman. Everyone's favourite Dr Watson as well. Um, This is right up my alley, Dan. This is, for me, just a real treat of a watch. This is exactly the kind of evening TV show that i will never tire and if i if i do a quick check of my five key checks british police we've got an accent in there we've got a strong lead and we've got a tense story i have some criticisms but overall i absolutely love this yeah this is a this does the call the boxes as you say i think it's uh it's I enjoy the fact that there's always only six episodes um i enjoy the like you know how like, we talk about like you know like anything sort of prison related is kind of fascinating. I equally find the same thing with anything police related, particularly if it's frontline. And I would almost say I wanted more Martin Freeman frontline police officer. And and uh, you could give me a, a whole series where he's just on the beat. Like I think it would be fascinating. Just him driving in his car was. And and just just even just facial expression reactions to listening to the radio of the jobs that were coming in. You know, he's doing the night shift and just the nature of the type and just his reaction to just shaking his head at the disbelief of the type of rubbish and the type of things that he had to literally respond to. It reminded me of how you and I often talk about we could we could just watch a whole series of of Jonathan Banks as as Mike Ermintrout just just driving around in his black car, just doing jobs. It's like I would never ever tire of it the, the front line that on the ground role is is so interested and, and uh, interesting sorry and, and that night shift in liverpool absolutely fascinating and you know as you say everyone's favorite hobbit martin freeman we've already done our peak performance on him 
absolutely superb in this. I couldn't tell that this was not his natural accent. I thought he was absolutely amazing in that. I thought he looked so tired and just really portrayed that that anger and frustration so well. I I dare say it would creep into a peak performance consideration for me. I just thought he nailed it. I um yeah, I thought it was awesome. One thing I just this is a critique, I think more of actually TVNZ uh, on demand or TVNZ Plus more than the TV show is I actually went looking for the subtitles button because I couldn't <laughs> fully understand the accent at all times. And I I, I was surprised and, and shooketh to see that there wasn't an option on TVNZ on demand for subtitles. Like that seems outrageous. I, I was going to ask you, did you go looking for subtitles? And, and um, you know, Diana also said the same thing in terms of I have no idea what he just said. It was kind of like um, some of it was just really – but I kind of like that they keep it that um, that raw and that they don't soften it too much because it kind of gives it that sense of real realism, I guess. Look, I agree. I think don't soften it. I think just give people the, the <laughs> subtitle option, you know, just so that we can at least like – look, I, I get the word lad every now and again and a few other um, colourful words, but it's – um. I think that my favourite thing about this series was, I guess, particularly because Martin Freeman's character is actually, uh, he's a veteran uh, police officer. He's actually been uh, pushed back down the ranks for some um, previous events. And I think when he takes on his Padawan or sort of um, new recruit, uh, Adelio, they, um, I can't even, I'm not even sure how you pronounce that last name, but I really enjoyed just sort of the relationship between a, a, a fresh out of training police officer and a veteran police officer and just trying to, how do you reconcile what you've been taught versus um, the lived experience of these roles? And I think the overall story was was quite good, particularly around um, Martin Freeman's character trying to basically help his mate out, stay out of stay out of trouble. Ultimately, wanting to do the right thing, having a sort of a mental breakdown at the same time, trying to kind of work through that. I did kind of find the sort of wider story of the, uh, particularly the uh, the young kind of druggies, I guess, of um, Emily Farron and mm. um, Philip Sean McGuinness. I found their story a little bit frustrating in the sense that. Again, I feel like it's a story we've just seen time and time again where, you know, you've kind of got these ultimately good at heart people who kind of bumble their way through things, making things worse and worse as it goes. And it just kind of felt like, of course, that's going to happen. And I wanted kind of more um, more sort of savviness and more sort of uh, intelligence around some of those um, the wider sort of plot and storyline. Yeah, no, fair, fair comment. I was thinking the same thing. That sort of so that that was the Casey Marco Ian dynamic, and Casey was just like a slippery snake. You just could never, never contain her in any situation where she should have been caught and contained several times, and she always managed to just sneak out, you know, like through a hole in the wall or something. And yeah, I, I know what you mean. That did detract a couple of times. There was a, there was a few plot points actually that. You know, whilst I'm so excited to watch a show like this, that just didn't make sense. Even the history of the characters didn't add up necessarily for me. So, you know, um, Madame Freeman's character and his uh, his mate Carl, um, you know, who was the well, we thought he was the big bad, but of course that kept getting oh, his actually there's a layer above, there's a layer above, there's a layer above. But that Madame Freeman Carl relationship over forty years kind of felt weird that Freeman even. Be- his character even became a police officer, you know, unless he was going to be corrupt right from the start. It just didn't, 
didn't necessarily make too much sense to me. Um, um, and yes, Shadow as well. I wasn't sure I quite had to pronounce her name. Sorry, um, Adeleo Adadeo. Um, I have seen her before in The Capture, which was one of my very first shows I ever talked about on this podcast when we did our top 10s of 2019. The Capture was worth watching. She was really good opposite man frame and she she really held her own she her storyline uh, and her journey and what she was going through was as fascinating so unlike the casey marco ian thing that we just described the the story with her character rachel and that relationship with chris and not knowing whether she should be reporting him or helping him i found that a really fascinating dynamic that was a super dark story wasn't it that kind of came mm. out not of nowhere but i think i think this sort of show is trying to sort of highlight um, you know, everyday people and kind of the dark stuff that kind of happen, happens around them and that some of the darkest things still happen to, you know, you think a, a policewoman would be, you know, pretty much a like bad stuff wouldn't happen to those people, but it still does happen. And there's, I think there were some real powerful scenes when she finally confronts her, her ex-partner at the fire station in front of, you know, all of his colleagues. Oh, that was incredible, um, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really good. I I am beginning to wonder, Paul, is Martin Freeman just like the angriest guy that we know? Because I think he plays this role. Like, I think he loves playing the role of the angry guy. And I think he just is so natural at it. Oh, 100%. And, and like like you say, so natural. His his portrayal of that persona, that that's what I was saying. I could watch him in the car all day long. His, his tiredness, his frustration, not playing by the rules, combined with the accent, actually led to some very entertaining uh decisions that he would make that maybe some frontline might not make and and then the the line delivery to the point where i was actually i was found myself laughing out loud even though this was serious but just sometimes just the way he was so far off the rails um and so that kept it tense and i found it i found it sort of stressful watching you know how you and i talk about like uncut gems in terms of that level of stress when you're watching something i found it I just felt overwhelmed by his his whole life. Like it was draining watching what he does every night and all the pressure he's on and all the moving pieces he was trying to to balance and keep afloat. I thought they really nailed the feel of that. So yeah, I think you're right. I think he loves this sort of role um, because it's it's just he just plays it so well. He's just got the perfect <laughs> he's got the perfect face. He's got the perfect face for this sort of thing. Because even if you think about him as Tim in the office. There was so much about that role that was actually unspoken about Madden Freeman's character, how he would just, you know, how he'd look at the character and just shrug his shoulders and just react. There was so much about his facial expression that he does so well, and he really brings it to this. One of my um, favourite slash heartbreaking scenes in this whole series is I think is where, so Madden Freeman's going to see a counsellor about all of these issues. He, he kind of, you know, he's, and he kind of talks right at the start of the series about he just wants to be a, a good Bobby, a good police officer. Yeah, yeah. And there's a scene sort of later on and sort of near the sort of maybe episode three or four where um, he's seen the counsellor and there's some confusion and she doesn't re- recognise who he is and she's sort of referring to notes from another client and it kind of just breaks him in the sense that he's been – and I imagine, like, you know, if you just sort of think – Lifelong police officer, probably not very good at talking to people, opening up, mm. finally makes a decision to go get some help and then kind of like feels like he's revealing it all and then to kind of find out he's 
kind of just a number in the system as opposed to someone who genuinely is trying to sort of help him must have just set back that counseling experience so far almost to an unredeemable state uh, yeah unredeemable completely yeah he he was you could just see that that so much other stuff would would break you or i or ma- most other people in terms of what he does that, but he's fine with that but when you, when that hits home that really really gets him and um i just yeah i love that the whole frustration and not knowing how to feel about him the whole way throughout the whole series, like empathizing with him, feeling sorry for him and then being just annoyed and frustrated with him. And then, and then just watching him just, you know, walking into a crime scene. And the first thing he does is checking, Oh, is there any, is there any dosh around there? Any, anything I can nick and stick into my, you know, it's just, there's just, there's, you, you never quite know. He's very much in the gray space. Very much. I think too, this is the, like it's it, this is w- when it was so good. I think seeing him just sort of like on the beat, uh, yeah. particularly with Rachel, because just his and I think this is sort of a, a credit to the writing, the way that um, he would just assess a scene, and that kind of sort of that they're able to sort of use Rachel to kind of play out the thinking, right? Of like, look, what's the point of locking this guy up? Like he's just you know this is just happening. He needs to go home, sleep it off, whatever is the situation, and the, you know always in the grey, but kind of having a um, having someone working with you who's straight out of a training college just allows that sort of that that dialogue to play out. So mm. I'm I'm really intrigued to see um, if we get a second season whether we get to sort of spend more time traveling the streets of Liverpool. And I really hope we do. I really hope. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you if you thought there was a second season here or not because I think that there there should be there could be. Um, the the one other thing I wanted to just quickly mention as a shout out I guess is David Bradley who always manages to show up with amazing roles, you know, like Harry Potter or Doctor Who, Broadchurch, or, um, or Afterlife, you know, as, as Ricky's dad. Um, he has some great lines in this as the homeless guy who Martin Freeman's sort of trying to help. I can't specifically remember anything other than him singing the old Opal Fruits Made to Make Your Mouth Water song. Um, but there were some great lines that he had and he stole every scene he was in. So um, for me, I, I kind of thought his casting was a real surprise. I didn't, I was like, is that David Bradley? And then it was. I think that's the great thing about David Bradley is he's kind of like one of those actors for me who's permanently old and he's kind of, he's, he's stuck in that like, 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 however old he is he's he's stuck in there he's stuck in that kind of like age bracket for like the last 10 or 15 years because i feel like whether as you said like whether he's in harry potter game of thrones whatever it may be Broadchurch, he afterlife he always kind of looks the same yeah um, but he's, right. he's, as you say he's a fantastic actor yeah absolutely i think um uh, for me this is this is as good. A, I, I think it's three and a half guns um, for me out of out of the four guns that we allowed. And I, I think if you're into, you know, all the things we said on the five point check, um, if you're into those gritty, if you're into the gritty ones though, you know, the on the ground, you know, never never really in the office, but on the ground. If you like trigger point, which was another sort of you know on the ground type one, I, I think this is definitely going to be for you. Yeah. No. Look, I I would I would easily agree with that, and I think it's. It's it's just so good when you because uh, whether this gets another season or not doesn't matter. We've still got like a nicely packaged start to start to end story over six episodes, um, and as you say, if you really enjoy this this genre or this sort of like BBC style uh, storytelling, then it's it's going to be for you. I agree with you at that gun rating, Paul. 
That's awesome. And that is available to watch in New Zealand on TVNZ+. Dan, what should we talk about next? Shall we jump on in to a little, uh, a little project called Obi-Wan Kenobi? I think we should. Uh, that's what we're all here for. I know I am. I am still buzzing about it because it was, it was less than 24 hours ago that we watched this, this final episode of this, um, of this mini series. That's, that's what we've been told. That's what it says on all the official sites. And so that's what we believe it to be. Obi-Wan is drawn into a confrontation with Darth Vader as Luke Skywalker's fate hangs in the balance. Just, just hearing the words Obi-Wan, Vader and Luke all in the same sentence of synopsis tells you that this is as Star Wars as it gets then. So much has happened in this episode, Paul, and I think it's always tough, right, because the the internet goes crazy yep. for anything sort of Star Wars and finale about who we're going to see, you know, big cameos, what could happen. And I think you've always got to balance out the a series like this where we know that both Obi-Wan and Vader live on beyond whatever this series delivers but i think it did a a pretty great job overall of kind of wrapping up these six episodes as well of as kind of leaving a few doors open for for future possibilities which i imagine we'll get to at the end of this um uh sort of review but i think just we've got to talk about this big jewel for this is this is the one of the greatest live action uh jewels that we that we've seen it's I love how you you sort of you're looking at your plate in front of you and you're diving straight into the the the, the, the meat the good stuff that you know you 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 deal with the veggies later it's it's oh you're right the excitement of um has been building yeah we think about our review of you know of of the prequels in podcasts 113 to through to 116 has all come to fruition as we find ourselves you know on the other side of this series now um and I, I think expectations of what we might see in this is when you know when we were reviewing those prequel movies, so so little of what has happened I could ever have predicted. But this duel for me is right up there with the highlight. So that standout episode of part three, where Vader comes down and says to the ground to go hunting for Obi Wan, this. This is right up there with that in terms of just sheer emotional reaction and just intensity of the watch. I have never seen anything quite like that before. And crucially, no matter what we say about any lightsaber duel ever, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm mainly talking live action because I don't. I know there are some things in the animation, but sit the moment that Vader was force pushed by Obi-Wan and knocked to the ground was a game changer because we, we've seen something that has never been really seen before. I know Luke sort of took him down in, in, in Return of the Jedi, but the nature of how Obi-Wan dealt to, uh, to Vader was beyond extraordinary. Yeah, it's kind of like it's, it's, it's so good, I think, because it was such a – emotionally intense fight and i think you're right like it reminds me of um a couple of the jewels particularly in star wars rebels but i think in, in live action sense i think this really took it to a whole nother level and i think particularly how 
angry Obi-Wan came into this. Like, angry is maybe the wrong word, but like how intense he came into it. And he, he was really going for it. And I think he knew that Vader was looking for him. And, like, you know, he was ultimately going into kind of almost sacrifice himself um, to, to save everyone else and particularly to save Leia. And I think the you're right, the moment he kind of brings Vader down, because we always just see Vader as kind of such a, a powerhouse, but to bring him to his knees to kind of, you know, get a few good hits on him, like, you know, to slash him across his back, to like like smash his helmet open, to, you know, pound them with those rocks. It's, um, it's just something we, we've never seen before. And it almost, I, I almost want a, uh, um, a redone, though would never, would, it would never happen. Of you know the the, the jewel in a new hope because I feel like those jewels, those jewels there are so kind of like light touch, aren't they? Compared to what we see these days. Oh, it, it really is, and I guess in some sense people always say, oh, you know, Obi Wan was too old in a new hope. It's kind of just as well he was because it kind of it kind of sort of explains the uh, the nature of that fight and the whole your power is a weak old man. But um, this. This is very much different, and and of course, it makes absolute sense that this battle played out like this. Thinking about that line that Vader uses in A New Hope: "When I left you, I was but the learner," because this, assuming that this is their their final battle, and I have to assume, no matter what other series we may get, that this would be. He is still the learner. I, I think you're right. Um, I I think the other thing I think that, that just worked so well for me in this scene and I almost I, I need to watch it again to like truly appreciate it is when Vader's helmet is kind of broken open mm. and the voice is fluctuating between this sort of the classic James Earl Jones yep. kind of yep. deep Vader voice to the Hayden Christensen Anakin voice and just sort of the Perfect. the way it would just kind of tonally shift was was a combination of sad and amazing and it, it just it brought so much to the scene um and i in a way vader kind of did a did a kindness to obi-wan by saying that you didn't kill me yeah you know like and that that was the i think the 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 shift in perspective for obi-wan that that changed his entire outlook on everything really well picked up on because when we we saw briefly in Rebels um, the you know when Ahsoka also cracked his mask and we saw the eyes coming through. What and we and obviously in Return of the Jedi we see the mask come off. But we're talking to Anakin at that point. He's 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 come back to the light. He's 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 killed it in this moment when it's fluctuating between. Obi Wan realizes that he's he's talking to. To Vader, so we're seeing the eyes. We're hearing Hayden Christensen's voice, as you say, sort of, sort of, and every now and then the mic kicks in, and it's James. Wood. I mean, that's just absolutely brilliant how they've done that. They've really brought those two separate characters to 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 one so well, and and Obi Wan realizes that he's not talking to Anakin there; he's talking to to Vader, and and there's a line that he he used which was absolute perfection, where he's then my friends truly dead. Which, which mirrors what Luke then says to him later in Return of the Jedi when he says, then my father is truly dead. And I think when we see Vader's reaction to Luke saying that in Return of the Jedi and he sort of, he sort of leans against the, the railing and looks depressed, that, that, that scene's going to be a great rewatch now because it's on the back of hearing Obi-Wan say exactly the same thing to him. 
Mm, mm, definitely. I think there's so much, um, there's so much power and there's so much, um, great storytelling in all of this. I did actually wonder when, uh, Obi-Wan was crushed by all the rubble. I actually thought that might be the moment that we get the Qui-Gon kind of like, yeah. like, cause he's like, and I was surprised, like, in, in a way, it was kind of, you know, for the sake of sort of moving the story along. Um, you know, the fact he got out of that so quickly was interesting. And I think the other thing that kind of surprised me about this scene, but, you know, it, it had to happen this way, there, there's no other way around it, is I feel like Obi-Wan, for the second time, left Anakin slash Vader without finishing the job. And I feel like, given the sense that, you know, like, if you forget everything that happens after this that we know about you would think knowing what a, a villain he's become and how intently he's trying to find um, Obi-Wan and potentially his 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 children, it would have made sense for Obi-Wan to finish the finish the job. Oh, it, it truly would have. And of course of course we knew that would never happen. And it's it had to, as you say, it had to happen that way. There was no way that Vader was going to come out on top in the situation because if if he did, then Obi Wan would be gone. So it, we always knew that if they were going to have a confrontation, that it would at least be honors even. But it was it was way it was way more than 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 honors even. And you know when he's when he's under that rebel, which was a great scene. In fact, just just before he's under the rebel, by the way, when Vader's looking down at him. I instantly envisaged a thousand memes saying you were saying something about the high ground, Obi-Wan. I actually wondered Vader's not going to give a high ground remark here because that, that the internet would go crazy with that. And I actually kind of thought Qui-Gon is going to need to show up here to, to get Obi-Wan out of this. But actually they, they, they just lent, uh, leaned on, sorry, the, the story that we've had in these six episodes of Leia and just him thinking about, you know, and to a certain extent, Luke, but mainly just thinking about Leia and how he's like, I've, I, I've got to get out of here. And he, he rises up and the body posture that he uses is, is incredible. I mean, there's several postures that Obi-Wan uses that fans of the, of Obi-Wan are going to love, but his, his confidence is at an all time high and Vader calls him out and says, you know, your powers have returned. And, it's it, it is an extraordinary i mean i'm not going to criticize too much because i was saying just in episode three you know this guy's in trouble he needs to hit the gym for the next six weeks and go back to fourth school he's he, he came back pretty quick right like it, it almost needed the 80s montage like with a bit of a, <laughs> yes. a song where he's like just like working out and doing like rocky you stuff know, lifting rocks and all that sort of stuff um i think just worth mentioning as well you just touched on um I think a sweet and nice moment in the in this episode is obviously before this duel happens when Obi-Wan's talking to Leia that he has to go and confront Vader and, you know, it's to protect everyone else. And that Leia kind of sneaks Lola onto yeah. um, onto Obi-Wan's position. And I think, again, just a, a great subtle moment without being overhanded about it when um, Obi-Wan's ship arrives and he finds that Lola's there. It almost is kind of a, I have to survive this because I have to get Lola back to back to Leia. And I thought it was just a, a, a sweet moment. No, really, really nicely picked out. And the the just the uh, the bravery uh, and the the how grown up Leia is to see that and to be able to, to to sneak that into him after he'd sort of said, Oh, maybe I maybe I could use some help from her and, and yeah, it's there's so many nice little moments like that. Other nice moments for me just moving away from that big battle with the Owen and Baru. Um, I really appreciated their role in this when Reva, 
you know, anyone can survive a force stabbing these days, Dan. When Reva comes in to, to presumably try and uh, end Luke or, or whatever she's going to do, they, they really hold their own and they, 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 they just show a different side to what we've seen in, you know, I guess, A New Hope and to a certain extent, Revenge of the Sith, where they could be perceived to be just sort of weak farmers um, that are just anti-Jedi and anti-everything. And I just thought that that, I really appreciated seeing them pick up a couple of guns and, and go after a, you know, after a Sith. I thought that was great. Yeah, I thought that was great too. I, I really enjoyed sort of giving their characters a bit more depth that they were kind of living that um, that re- that rebel life. Uh, one thing that did annoy me in, in that sort of scene was like, we need to get ready, we need to get into position. I kind of thought they were setting a trap and yeah. then, you know, fast forward into the evening and it's like, she's here and it's like, aren't you guys supposed to be getting ready? Like, <laughs> <laughs> they stood like, around. Yeah. And I think the whole kind of, it's always bothered me from the very start of the Star Wars universe, the security of um, of the Lars homestead and that you kind of like, you always have the low ground That's in that right. house bothers me to no end. But um, I think it's, it's interesting, right? Because if we sort of talk about the um, the the Reva storyline, and it was it was again interesting that we kind of went straight into kind of Reva looking for um, for Owen, and that that was sort of the the starting scene, and we didn't sort of waste any time, sort of who getting medical help or getting yeah, you know, sort of getting off the planet. And I almost wondered whether there was going to be some sort of like time jump scene where Obi Wan was already going to be on Tatooine. Um, yeah. Yep. Just, just because it kind of was out of sync that we saw Reva and then like we're sort of then moving back to um, everyone being chased by the Star Destroyer and it kind of just, it didn't it didn't chronologically make sense. But I think it in terms of the story, it, it over it overall worked. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that they moved the story along because um, in truth, potentially there was a, a, an argument that this episode could have been split across two. Um, so that we didn't have to jump from piece to piece quite so quickly. And uh, I don't know that it needed it, but um, I'm glad that we didn't waste, you know, we didn't waste too much time at the start in sort of Obi-Wan leaving Lair and, and going down to the planet. And we didn't waste too much time, as you say, with Reva or even at the end, jumping around from from Alderaan to Mustafar to back to Tatooine. Like, there were several moments. I mean, I was getting quite stressed out towards the end because I, because I, I didn't know how much time was left. It felt like, because this was a 51 minute episode, which, you know, you said, as long as it starts with a five, you'll be happy. Um, and it just felt like, oh, it's been going well. It's bound to end there. Like each time it got to the end of like a scene on Mustafa, a scene on Alderaan, I thought, oh, that's it. That's the end. And I was like, I was just sitting there stressed about the fact that we hadn't seen Qui-Gon Jinn. And I, I needed, I needed that moment. And of course, ultimately we got it in the end. I think too, the other thing we need to kind of, I think give a shout out to this is obviously we've got a, a a cameo as such of the um, Emperor of Emperor Palpatine um, in in Vader's castle, which was, and I just before we sort of go into that, I do wonder, does Vader have like a closet where it's just full of like, you know, 10 Darth Vader uniforms and it's just got like new back pieces, new helmets and stuff so that he can just like, I guess it makes sense. You're not just going to have one, right? Like It's like the Batcave, you know, when you see all the Batsuits all there, it's like, which one shall mm-hmm. I wear today? Um, I was glad that that because you know he got so badly beaten up and it was so great to see him in that shape and I feel like we still need to talk more about that but um, I'm glad we didn't see the putting back together. I I almost feel like from a uh, what's the word uh, out of respect, modesty, privacy. I don't know. I, I didn't want to see that. Like let let him do that and, and just I come agree. back fully dressed again. 
And I would imagine this is probably why Vader is on Mustafa, right? Because he's like, he'll get in his ship, he'll he'll like bust it home, he'll have some droids help him, like put him back together. And it's good because you don't want the um the whole empire seeing you that's kind right. of like weak, right? Like that's doesn't fit the persona. No, it doesn't. And I, I I thought exactly the same thing. Also doesn't fit the persona. Why was he traveling in a shuttle? Well, he should have been in his tie. Everyone wants to see Vader's tie. He's traveling around in the equivalent of a Ford Transit minivan. And no one really needs to see the Dark Lord of the Sith traveling around in that. I thought this was an opportunity to bring his tie interceptor in. But hey, that's a that's a minor quibble on my part. But to your point about Palpatine I thought that was perfect because we wondered, would he show up and would he not? I thought it was a nice length cameo. I thought it was, and I thought Ian McDermott played it well. I thought it was great how he was baiting him, how he was criticizing him. And also his voice was subtly, and I think deliberately different when he's talking to Vader. It's more like he's a father figure that he was in Revenge of the Sisters. The voice that I heard and even the facial expression and to a certain extent the makeup was was more in line with Sheev Palpatine, the Senator Palpatine, the Palpatine that Anakin formed that relationship to, rather than when we see him talking to any other subordinates or, or enemies where his voice is much, much more angry and his face is much more shriveled up. There's nothing worse, Paul, than your boss calls you your friend. He's like... You know, it's yeah. it's really cross, crossing some realms. Um, I think you're right, and I think, you know, we've – Palpatine is such a, a threat in, in the whole Star Wars universe. And you can it actually kind of makes sense to me now why Vader is based on Mustafar because he kind of actually needs to be kept in secrecy and just used at, at prime times. And he, you know, I think the Emperor actually knows that he needs like recovery time, he, you know, and that that can't be shown to the rest of the of the world. Yeah, no, exactly right. Exactly right. Shout out to Rupert Friend uh, as the Grand Inquisitor. I thought how he plays that role opposite vader um was just super him trying to tell vader what to do and that we shouldn't be chasing one man we should be going after the insurgents um and his facial expression when vader's like nah we're going this way i just thought he he plays that grand inquisitor role so well and i really really hope we see more of um of him in live action as the the the, the inquisitor in in other series I, I definitely agree. It's um it's very tough to play the assistant to the regional manager in, you know, these Correct. sorts of roles. Correct. Um I actually think can we just talk about that the space chase for a little while? I actually found this a little bit clumsy, um, in the sense that as the Star Destroyers chasing the the smaller sort of starship, which is obviously broken, I felt like the smaller ship was on a piece of string and it was like swinging around <laughs> and it didn't feel like a like there was moments where it, it, it sort of felt right, but there was a lot of moments where it kind of felt a bit we're better than that in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, no, I, I it triggered in me, and I don't hold this view, but I know a lot of people do. That's why it made me think of it. It brought back flashbacks of The Last Jedi where there's this long sort of everyone's down to, you know, walking pace and neither one's ever going to catch the other. But it kind of makes me think, couldn't they have launched some ties and wouldn't the ties have been faster and wouldn't a whole barrage of ties been able to take that ship down if they just launched them? I, I don't know. I feel like, Paul, I, I don't want to get in the um, in the hate train of, of yeah. these sorts of things because there, there's enough like bad vibes oh, out yeah. there. But, but um, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely questions to be asked. I think the other... The other question I'll just lightly raise, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to be too dark about it. Is when Obi Wan um, 
sees Luke in trouble in Tatooine, but then when he gets to Tatooine, he doesn't know where Luke is. It's like, mm-hmm. I, like, yeah. oh, he did the Dune Sea. It's like, yeah. come on, man. You just saw him in the, yeah. in the cliffs. It's, it's, if you're going to have ultra-high force powers, then when you come down to the planet, you can't be looking around using your eyes. And also, when Reva brings Luke along, and obviously we know Luke's still alive, but Baru and Owen, they can't tell, is she carrying his dead body? Obi-Wan should be able to feel that Luke is still alive. He shouldn't have that look of surprise on his face when Luke starts moving. So again, I'm not going to get hung up on either, but just yeah, a, just yeah, a little yeah. thing there. Yeah. Um, can I quickly touch on, as I like to, the music? Um, I thought the use of three theme, themes that we haven't heard in any of the other five and a half episodes, but we hear in the just in the last half of this, the Imperial March theme for Vader, the Leia theme, and the Force theme for Luke and Obi-Wan. I just thought the use of that and saving it for that moment made those themes even more um, pivotal and sort of stand out. Yeah, I agree. Some some great use of the of the classic sort of instrumental music of Star Wars. Um, I think the other thing I enjoyed about like, – I actually kind of enjoyed the, the closing of the – you know, well – I don't think that door was fully closed, but the the closing of the River arc in this um, mini series as it currently stands, um, and I enjoyed that uh, when Owen is trying to sort of like get Luke organised. He's like, "Oh, Tuscan Raiders, they're raiding farms along the way." Yeah. I, like, I enjoyed that kind of reference, yeah. and I knew that like Luke was going to have to get kind of like knocked out at some point because you can't have Luke seeing River with a lightsaber or that's right, um, sort of any sort of knowledge of it. And I think the way that whole scene kind of played out worked quite well um i yeah i think some of the chase was sort of interesting but it was kind of interesting to kind of see i guess reva's redemption um in this you know because this is almost kind of been as much of a reva story as it has been an obi-wan series yeah oh you're absolutely right and i think that it's it's so easy to overlook that because we're talking about characters that go all the way back to the 1970s. And so seeing them in this live action is, is overwhelming. And so that Reva story almost plays second fiddle as does the, even the the layer story, because the layer story for me has been a standout surprise of this whole series. And just the Vivian Lara Blair as, as Leia has been great, but Moses Ingram as, as Reva, that whole story that coming, I don't, I don't know if I want to say coming back to the light, um, the whole story arc of her, you know, trying to, in her mind, she thought she was manipulating Vader, but she was getting played. But then, you know, because like if I said at the start, oh, this is a mini series. If there were a second season, uh, I think, oh, where do we go with it? I think, oh, is it going to be you know, Qui-Gon training Obi-Wan? But the other thing is the story would be Reva's full journey back to the light. And maybe she becomes a Jedi again. And maybe that Jedi meets its untimely end because of course where is she later on but uh, a really good story act for her and you know we talked before about a lot of the un- unnecessary unfair undescribable criticism that she's received uh, and racist criticism um, I think she's been superb throughout this and the quality of actress to, to stand aside what we've got in this this series I thought she was absolutely brilliant one of my favourite little side things is I love how both Reva and Obi-Wan with their English accents, like it just, yeah. there's something real charming about it every time. I actually wonder with Reva is I could see a spin-off series called The Path and, you know, Reva is, you know, potentially working with some other 
characters helping actual fallen Jedi now that she's sort of made the redemption. And I think this is the thing with Reva, I think, is that she doesn't even necessarily have to go. Like, I think there's options ahead of her, right? She could go um, full back to the light. I'm going to, you know, try and do something in the uh, in the Jedi realm again. She could go into a bounty hunter. She could turn into a bit of, she could go back to the, and of course there's, there's all sorts of options, but I think, the way that the path is played up, like I can, I can already see the font pool. I can see Disney announces the path. You can have Inquisitors chasing after Reva. I think you can kind of expand on the Obi Wan series without necessarily having to go too deep on, you know, Obi Wan and Vader. And like, you could kind of have cameos of some of these people. Like I, it feels like it's ripe for sort of opportunities, because um, I think there's still so much more to be told. I actually think four more of these stories to be told, though. I actually like. I think. And I know that you and McGregor's already said he'd love to put the robes on a couple more times. Um, you don't want to go too deep, though, because yeah. I just feel like the more and more that we sort of dig into these, the more and more you have to think. It, like, we can't have too many more Vader jewels. No. Or it kind of it undervalues the a, a New Hope. But I really do think that we've set up the the, the Inquisitors are getting more and I think Reva's getting more. And I hope that none of the, the terrible backlash that has happened has changed that plan. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I, I'd love to be proved wrong, but I think you're right that we don't need to see Darth Vader and Obi-Wan duel again because how it's how it's ended is that's perfect. And it's filled a gap that has been there, you know, since Revenge of the Sith to A New Hope. It's filled that unspoken unknown just perfectly um as for your you're able to see the, the title you're able to see the font it is the future you see it's the, it's that force vision that i you know you're walking into disney into the lucasfilm writers room with dave filoni i can see it now this is going to become a real series i would love to see that and yeah definitely more inquisitors definitely more of that i um i i do want to Oh, quickly, before we go back, I think we can still talk a little bit more about the battle, but Qui-Gon showing up at the end. I I can't explain somehow, given everything we saw in this episode, I can't explain how that for me was just an absolute, I almost say number one highlight for me. And even just the, the humor that he brought with his opening remark, just turning around and saying, oh, took your time, you know, just, just fell straight back into it. And I think the reason that it resonates with me and why it fascinates me so much is because when we think about the whole breadth of Star Wars with huge characters like Vader and Obi-Wan, for me to to look at this and be so drawn into a moment from a character from The Phantom Menace, which received so much criticism, just to me speaks to how much I clearly do relate to those movies. I think, you know... I say it all the time, those movies just get better and better with time. And I think these bits that they're adding to the universe actually make them stronger. And I know that there's kind of a real move away from the um, the sort of final three episodes of the Star Wars saga. But, you know, you, you could actually see them kind of um, fixing up some of the gaps in storyline with similar type content, right, that actually makes those movies stronger. Um, yeah, I think it's... I think the Qui-Gon scene was, was great. I, I At first I kind of thought, oh, is this a bit kind of like forced? But I think in kind of like deeper reflection, I think it, it was kind of great. Like it almost kind of became a more natural way to introduce Qui-Gon back into the series. Yeah, it, it is perfect because I, I hoped and wanted to see him much earlier. But you're right, leaving it up until the end uh, was 
was clever and felt right. You and I did speak briefly offline and we've got it in writing if no one believes us. And, you know, we sort of said, oh, you know, Qui-Gon's going to show up right at the end as a force goes. Luke's going to be involved, but as a background character, we're going to get Owen and Baru a bit more. We're going to have a... It, we, were, we were pretty good with a lot of our projections here. And I think that's probably why this whole episode feels so satisfying for me. The, the duel, of course, will be what is mostly talked about. And I just think seeing Vader being flung a couple of times across the floor to hear that James Earl Jones reaction within the suit when he's sort of being beaten down to see the the um whatever it is the the iPad that he's got on his chest piece that Mm. getting smashed you know when Obi-Wan started smashing that up and you could hear the the breathing going I was like I was just encapsulated thinking where is this going where how is this going to end how far is it going to go and I think that the level of how far they took it that that was kudos to those writers and Deborah Trayer in particular as producer of this show is just exceptional. One funny thing about that chess piece port was I've always wondered for years that like you know how it's got real tactile buttons that look like they're real on off switches. Yeah. I've always just thought like force push like turn them off and it just shuts Vader down completely and he's like. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the nineteen the nineteen seventies design of that has has had to come all the way through and now yeah. the someone's rethinking those decisions. I think I'm, I'm just sort of conscious of time, but the last thing that um, I think just I, I really enjoy sort of the, the wrap up with Leia and I oh, think yeah. her sort of seeing Obi Wan again and kind of the, the even just the premise of you know if you ever get stuck like get in contact with me again. I just thought that just opened the door up for all of the season two possibilities. I enjoy just I think the difference between. Um, Leia and Luke and I think you know Leia obviously with the life that she lives almost seems far more sort of like emotionally kind of developed yep. and um and I think they use Luke just the right amount of time I think that um yeah I, I would love to see more of sort of Leia sort of in that sort of like 10 to 16 year old bracket where she's kind of slowly having to take on um or more challenges and responsibilities but it was a another sort of like heartwarming scene between um her and obi-wan it really was now that was probably emotionally wise probably the 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 biggest highlight and the 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 biggest sort of choking up moment as he was leaving her and um i mean yes when he walked over to luke and i like the fact that owen let him say hi because you know i was like are we going to have that moment? Could we, because you know, he, you know, Luke knows when he talks about, oh, he, I don't know if he means old Ben. He's kind of an old, you know, he knows who he is. So I think having that just little walk up, but I was blown out of the water that I thought he's not going to say it. He's not going to say it. And then he says it. Hello there. I mean, it's, it's fan service, but no one in the world is complaining. No one. No, nah, it's perfect. It's, it's, it's so great. So great. So, look, Paul, I, for one, can't wait to sit down and watch all six of these episodes mm-hmm. kind of over an evening. I think it'll be a fantastic watch. There's still a lot of kind of like loose ends with some of the other Inquisitors. I'm hopeful that even if it's not Obi-Wan Season 2, it's another kind of spin-off show that might be created out of this because I think there's so many more stories to tell. I think I think you're right. And if, if we do get that, it wouldn't surprise me if the angle of that story is uh, a Vader driven story a hayden christensen i may be dreaming a bit much but yeah we'll we'll see um because i'm sure we'll hear about it within the next year or so indeed indeed well should we uh jump on over to our movie of the week indeed so every week dan and i take it in turns choose a movie to watch and review we announce 
uh, what that movie will be in our Discord community, which you can join by clicking on the link in the show notes. And then a week later, we review it right here on the podcast. And this week, Dan, we have gone with 2021's House of Gucci. This is uh, a movie, basically, it's a star-studded movie, but a quick synopsis for you. When Patrizia uh, Reggiani, an outsider from humble beginnings, marries into the Gucci family, her unbridled ambition begins to unravel their legacy and triggers a reckless spiral of betrayal, decadence, revenge, and ultimately dot 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 murder so this is uh as i say this is a, this is a star-studded movie so we've got lady gaga we've got um adam driver as kylo ren we've got al pacino we've got jeremy irons we've got jared leto um it's we've got selma hayek like i i didn't even recognize some of these actors and yeah. with all of these sort of prosthetics particularly jared leto's yeah. character um but this was a this was a long movie paul and um maybe not quite what I expected. What did you think of this one? Yeah, it was a long movie. It was probably at least 15 minutes too long because there were times where it really dragged for me. It was slow or dare I even say it was boring. But overall, because I think I came into this with with actually quite low expectations, this was surprisingly better than I expected. Um because I, uh, you know, I'll be honest. I genuinely had no interest or or knowledge of this family or the or the people. I couldn't have told you any of the names of this family before this movie. Um, but even though there were periods where I was a bit distracted, overall, I think it was really well made. I thought it was very well um, directed for a Ridley Scott movie. It probably didn't fit what I would think is where he can be most showcased but i thought he did a great job and as that cast was very entertaining um jared later as you said just was unrecognizable and you know and after saying i hadn't seen many good pacino roles in the last 20 years i think was it just last week i don't know when I, um, this this was one he really got into and all of the cast um were good i think alongside jared Leto in particular for me him and pacino were a real highlight but yeah there were moments where it was just like can we wrap this up yeah so i think for me i sort of came in it from the the opposite angle where like i've been wanting to see this movie since the moment it was announced i remember talking about it on the news desk i really wanted to go and see it at the at the theater that never ended up happening it was probably during sort of one of our various covid lockdowns and when it finally sort of came to uh neon i was i I was so excited to be able to sort of have it as, as movie of the week and i think i had the bar set way too high because i overall didn't really enjoy my time with this movie and I think it's it's a little bit complicated in the sense that or it's, it's almost a little bit of the Walking Dead vibe for me <laughs> cast Bye. amazing um some of the scenes amazing the 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 way that the sort of like the sets were put together like it was fascinating I actually found the story a little bit scrappy and not that kind of easy to follow at times mm. and I I feel like it could have really done with, in my view, kind of a, a tightening up of the of the script and how they told the story, and definitely sort of shortened down. And I think because, like, I didn't, I definitely didn't hate it, and it definitely wasn't terrible. But I, I, I wanted a a, a simpler, clearer story to follow, and I, I felt like it just kind of jumped around a bit and kind of required you to kind of either in, interpret what was kind of happening between those sort of time periods or what was happening yeah it did jump around quite a lot and i think sometimes i wasn't quite sure where we were and i think 
the only thing it did well in that respect to keep me aware was sort of like the soundtrack and sort of like the the song that was being played gave me and i was thinking oh, okay so that's where we are and it was only you know I, for people who are perhaps younger than myself then or you know, maybe like all that music just feels old and they'd have no clue where they were, but I was able to piece together where we were. I thought I wouldn't have minded some, some intro text. So, you know, like at the mm. end when they, you know, they talked about what happened, you know, as they often do, you know, after this, this person went to prison, this person's, I wouldn't have minded some intro text at the start to sort of set the tone because they kind of jumped straight in and assumed either that we had a basic idea of who these people were or anything. And so, so yeah, um, and as I say, I thought it was well directed, but as I say, Ridley Scott's strong suit, if I didn't know it was him directing, I wouldn't have guessed. Whereas, you know, some of his other movies that are less, I guess, less character drama, I think that's where his signature style is more easily um, recognizable. But um, yeah, I did think it was very entertaining. I did think it was funny. I said 15 minutes could be cut and just hearing you talk, I'm thinking maybe it could be even more. Maybe it could be 20 30? I don't know. They need to tighten up, right? Yeah, look, I think, you know, this is 2 hours 38. Like, mm. you know, our a real sweet spot for us normally, Paul, was about 1 hour 50. Yeah. And I think that would be a lot to cut out of this film. But I think um, I think it's a really good idea. Like, I think some opening kind of intro text and even some intro text between some of the time jumps might have just kind of, like, kept you a bit more informed because I think you're right. I think this movie presumes that you already know about the sort of the drama and this family and you've kind of got, you've read the Wikipedia page, which after watching the movie, I sort of went away and read and it kind of like made it all make a bit more sense. But I felt like I shouldn't have had to work. Maybe I'm just a little bit slow, but I felt like I had to work quite hard to understand the story considering how long it was. But I also kind of felt a bit bitter about it because I was excited about it. And I like this is a star-studded cast, so it kind of sat in a bit of a funny place for me. Yeah. I find it interesting hearing our respective views because I've come out of it probably more positive than negative because I came into it. Like, if you hadn't put it forward for movie week, I don't know that I ever would have watched this movie, right? And so... So I think I'm glad that I did now because I got a, a better reaction. And of course, I recall now, as you say, because I actually thought at one point, hasn't Dan watched this already? But you're right, you were talking about it on the news desk. So I know what it's like when you're hyped for something. And it feels to me like you watching it at home was probably just as well rather than going into the theatre for this one. Indeed, indeed. So look, I think... You know, it's it's got a relatively positive score, particularly on Rotten Tomatoes. It's it's got a really high audience rating, and it's got a you know an, an okay review on IMDb. I think um, if this is a sort of any interest to you, definitely worth checking out. I would say to get the best experience, if you do a little bit of Wikipedia research before watching this, you'll probably have an even better time um, because you'll kind of have the bones of the story. But it's um yeah, this is a probably a for me, it's probably about a two gun. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think. I think it's the quality of the cast that, you know, if you want to see Carlo Ren, Tony Montana and the Joker get together with a, a pop star, uh, uh, <laughs> that side of it's quite entertaining. I think, I, I think I'm going to, Pepe, I'm going to go two and a half star, which is uh, yeah. is uh, where I think I sit on, on this one. Very good. So um, my pick of the week, Dan, is quite simply... Obi-Wan Kenobi and it's almost a relief that it's finished because we might have some other choices for our pick of the week because there's been so many series over there yeah because like I had such a great time with Responder and Doctor Who series 6 was great but I cannot this is iconic 
I agree. It's almost not even worth sort of debating or relitigating. It's just so much goodness came out of it. It's definitely my pick of the week. Good picks, Dan. What's rocking on the news desk? Uh, so on the news desk today, what have we got? Only a couple of things today. So um, Disney has uh, another Planet of the Apes movie in the works, and they're potentially hoping that it's sort of a continuation of the previous movies that came out, but they're hoping that this might turn into another, I guess, trilogy of films. And so if you're a Planet of the Apes film, very good news for you, and we'll keep you posted as we hear more of this uh, universe and story being expanded. Uh, Ethan Hawke has recently come out and said, well, he said again actually for a second time, he really wants to be in a Star Wars film. And I think the the image that they've used for him is from his role in Moon Knight where he's sort of got long hair and he's kind of got, you know, this sort of um, quite sort of like baggy clothes. And it instantly made me feel he could easily play a, a Jedi Knight or an Inquisitor or any number of sort of Star Wars roles. And... It, just sort of interesting because he, he did a campaign sort of several years ago and he hasn't quite made it, but I imagine um, a, a big name like Ethan Hawke saying the word now, there'd be so many opportunities for him to get involved. So that's that's pretty exciting. I'm a fan of Ethan Hawke. Uh, Kevin Costner, um, who we have much love for here on the Half Measures podcast, he is working on a new Western event television movie and it's going to be called Horizon and it's going to be split into four parts each clocking in at around two hours and 45 minutes I think Kevin Costner has found his niche he found that niche back with Dancers with Wolves <laughs> and Wired Earp and all that sort of and it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and I'm 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 here for it Paul I'm here for this uh four-part movie television experience we have a, a trailer for Stranger Things Season 4 Part 2, which I started to watch, and then I was like, what are you doing, Daniel? What are you doing? And I actually stopped. I, I, it's a minute 54. I got a minute in, and I was just like, just stop. This this already looks incredible. They've got um, Kate Bush running up that hill, soundtrack pumping down in the background. There's guitar solos. There's, it looks incredible. I can't wait for the 1st of July to see uh, the next part of Stranger Things. And then the final bit of news for me is it looks like there is a early development um, exploration going on for a Game of Thrones Jon Snow sequel series reportedly in development. So everyone sort of has their various views on that final season of Game of Thrones. Um, and I, you know, Kit Harrington, Jon Snow was definitely a favourite character of many people. It would be intriguing to see um, what they might do as a spin-off series. And I think with some of the great things that shows like Dexter have kind of come back and done and sort of retrofitted their ending, I think this could be a real opportunity for HBO to right some of the wrongs that happened in that final season. Um, so fingers crossed it goes ahead. I think there's many a character in the Games of, Game of Thrones universe that I'd love to see a spin-off sh- series of, particularly someone like Arya Stark. But um, yeah, keep keep watching the space. I imagine HBO is going to see how their their new series does in August. Um, but yeah, expect there could be more Game of Thrones on the horizon. But that is me, Paul. Anything from your end? Um, not really. No, you. Um, I was going to mention that there was a Stranger Things trailer that I sort of managed to avoid at this point. So it's ironic that you sort of did the same thing in some respects. Um, and yeah, the, the Kevin Costner was the one I was going to bring about because that's quite exciting and splitting it into four. I like the sound of that. Um, so yeah, nothing nothing more from me, Dan. I only have a couple of pieces in our mailbag, so I'll just run through those. Um, our review of My Son, a movie of the week last week, um, that one got shared on um, 
the composer of the music, Lauren Perez Del Mar, he, he shared that on his Instagram story, which is always a, a treat. We um, had some some comments as well from Lulu, um, Outstanding Performance from James McAvoy, Outstanding Soundtrack, all of the work behind this. This movie deserves everything. It's so deep and tense. Um, and from Zeri, um, again, a lot of, lot of comments on the music. Very masterful performance from James McAvoy. Music was perfect raw and had very engaging um so that was that was that was good um top 10 movies of all time we had um you know say it all last week we had uh, a couple of responses and we had a top 10 list come through from from ash from palmerston north who wanted to give us his top 10 films listen to this then then the last starfighter magnolia independence day hunt for red october dodgeball Scent of a Woman, Train Spotting, Toy Story, Star Trek First Contact, High Five, and Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. I love hearing different people's perspectives on top 10 movies. I have to give a real shout out um, for, for Dodgeball making it into someone's top 10 because there are moments in that movie where I absolutely lose it. Amazing. It's interesting how you like to see in people's top ten and what kind of spins people's different wheels and how much spice they're on when they're when they're when they're making these <laughs> lists. But it's um it's I agree with you. I love hearing people's top tens. It's um both inspiring of movies that I probably need to rewatch or sometimes even movies I haven't even seen. So keep sending them in. The Last Starfighter. That's yeah. I need to I need to I need to go check this film out because it's it's been it's a very old movie. Um also um. Also a top 10 list from Matt and Nelson. Um, but this one, Dan, uh, took a spin as a top 10 crime drama series um, of all time. Now, that is a tough category, um, as we talked about you know, with the responder, how much we love those. Um, top 10. So here we go. Uh, number 10. I'll get it in reverse order. Mindhunter. Then Broadchurch. Line of Duty. Ozark, The Killing, Narcos, True Detective, The Wire, The Runner-Up Spot Goes to Luther, and number one, one of your top ten TV shows of all time then, Happy Valley. Now that is a broad collection of things. I can't cope with the mix of the British and the North America, and I need to almost categorize it even further. That's where my brain goes, but um, there are some top shows in there. That is a, an amazing top 10 list and one that I could definitely get behind. I do think you're right, though. It really threw me hearing Ozark in that list. Like, yeah. not not for any reason other than just such a different, the American versus UK experience is, is often so different. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're going to open up that, then, then I start thinking, well, Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad actually might fall into that arena as well. So, um, but yeah, I love Dangerous. that. I love that. Um, that so thank you to matt for that top 10 and then um finally last week's um peak performance we had uh winona Ryder. um we had three darika from procurador bay um went 100 percent reality bites um neither of us had that on our list and it's it is a, an absolute classic it's a great shape there um uh, michael from north carolina stranger things Age of Innocence and number one was Heather's. Uh, Kel, Kelly, Kelly, sorry, Kelly um, said 
love most of her performances, but definitely Joe from Little Women and Joyce from Stranger Things. And the king of 321s, Paddy from Time Traveling Team Podcast, gave us his 321. Dracula, Mermaids, and Stranger Things was his peak performance. That is the mailbag this week, Dan. I love all those um, submissions this week. Very good. Shall we uh, jump on over to our peak performance um, of the week? Yeah, so like a movie of the week, each week Dan and I take in turns to choose someone from the movie TV arena and say what was the best thing they ever did. We're going to look at Brad Pitt this week, Dan. I'm genuinely shocked that we haven't done Brad Pitt. I feel like I've said this before, but I'm like, and I've actually had to double check the list multiple times, like, because I feel like we've just talked about so many movies that he's in. Um, but I think we've often talked about uh, other other actors that, that sort of draw that connection. But for me, this is a classic tough one because there's so many great Brad Pitt movies. But the two that I'm going to bring to the table today for my honorable mention i'm going to go with 2009's inglorious bastards and brad pitt's role as lieutenant aldo rain first of all what an incredible name aldo rain i love it and i just think just the this is already a great quentin tarantino movie um and i think brad pitt just sort of embodies this this is such a a fantastic um, leader of the sort of dirty dozen quite squad as they sort of go go Nazi hunting. And there's some pretty dark things that happen in this film, but overall I just think Brad Pitt has some such memorable lines of dialogue and classic scenes that it really stands out for me. But for my peak performance, I can't go past 1995's Seven. And this is a classic David Fincher movie. I think this is a, this is a very young Brad Pitt mm. in the in the scheme of movies, but I just think he plays this fantastic role as a you know a, a new to town, relatively young detective solving some horrific uh, crimes as they sort of work their way through the seven deadly sins. And I think you know again, just coming down to the final moment, Paul, what's in the box is such a emotive well done scene um that's so well earned and i think it's a it's a movie that sort of really stands the test of time and it's it's and thanks to i think brad pitt and morgan freeman's sort of amazing performances but that is me how about yourself really good choices you're right you sort of forget how young he was in seven because i always feel like by the time i watched seven i felt like brad pitt had been around for ages but he'd actually not been on the scene too long there's just two years between my two um picks and like you i've also gone 2009's inglorious bastards um for my honorable mention i remember hearing the casting for this one and being you know like you a big quentin tarantino fan i wasn't sure if brad pitt was gonna maybe fit into the whole vibe that tarantino was going for but then the instant you see even the trailer um he's just absolutely superb there's like this there's a look and a facial expression that Brad Pitt has in this movie. And he sort of keeps it up for the whole movie and it's just great. And, you know, amongst so many great performances in this movie, he is a real standout. And I think if it wasn't for the fact this movie was two and a half hours long, it'd probably get a lot more rewatches because it is just an absolutely superb movie. So I love that you and I are in sync on our honorable mention. But yeah, my um, my peak performance uh, gone in a different direction. Just a couple of years later, 2011, Moneyball. And this was, I almost surprised myself with this choice, but when I actually thought about it, I thought, no, this, I really enjoyed him in this. this. So this is a baseball movie where Brad Pitt plays Billy Bean, the GM of Oakland. And it's how he attempts to build a baseball team 
you know, spending very little money, but using statistical data analysis to select um, the new players to buy. And I think it flies under the radar a little of this movie. But I mean, if I was to put it in context, this is probably my favorite sports movie ever. And I think it's it's so well done. I think it is a great script, obviously true story. And as the lead, I think opposite Jonah Hill and um, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, I thought he was just superb. And you know, a lot of sports fans, especially baseball fans, maybe criticize or disappointed with this a little bit because it's all it's a lot of it is talk and back office stuff and less on the field stuff. But I found that angle fascinating. And you know, Brad Pitt just really nails it with the confidence and the swagger that he 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 uses to take what Jonah Hill's character, you know, the data brains of this whole approach and make it actually work. It's a really great combo. So that's my my picks. That's awesome, Paul. Well, that probably brings us to the end of a, another episode of the, the Half Measures podcast. Does indeed. Get in touch with us if you've got a peak performance of Brad Pitt or a top 10 uh, list that you want us to, to hear. We love hearing them or comment on about anything we've said about Responder or Obi-Wan or our movie of the week. Do check us out on our social media. Also, a very special shout out to our Patreon producers of the show, uh, Samara Whiting-King, Trisha Brady, Diana Kanawa, and Linda Tevner. We couldn't do it without you. If you too would like to become a Patreon of the show, then you can find those details in the show notes below. But until next week, everyone, adios.